We live in such an interesting time. There's so many things that I could talk about that make this, this time in human history unique, but I'll, I'll pick two to start with. What's so interesting in my lifetime is that certain things that were just the category of what I would call nerddom are now like what everyone loves. And I speak of this as a, as a nerd, but, but I can remember when if you read comic books, you're made fun of. And now the, the biggest movies in the world are comic book movies. Um, another interesting thing that's happening in, in our world today is that we are all looking for experiences that pull us off of these. We hear every week from people who watch us online, and if you're watching online, thanks for joining us. Um, people go, it's just not the same. When I'm watching on here, we go, that's the point. Because if it was the same or if it was better, why would you come? Um, we we want to have experiences that are, are better in person that pull us off of our devices. And so if I made a little Venn diagram here, that we're living in a moment where we're having the rise of the nerds, and uh, we want to have non-screen experiences. And in this little overlap area is some awesome things, including there's some awesome money to be made. And, and one of the ways people are making money off of this is they're building what's called escape rooms. Anybody here been to an escape room before? Raise your hand. Okay. So if you don't know what an escape room is, basically uh, you and some friends and some family, maybe some coworkers if it's team building, you go into this room. And typically it's kind of thematically decorated like this one is. And uh, you have probably like 60 minutes to solve a puzzle and, and then get out of the room, you know, unlock yourself. You're not really locked in there. That would be a whole liability thing. But, but you're in there and you're trying to solve the puzzle. You're trying to get out of the room and your goal is to get out in time. You're finding clues as these people are. They're looking under things. They're trying to figure out how to get out of the escape room. In 2014, there were 20 of these. By 2017, there were 2,000. 100x growth in three years. Just crazy, crazy growth. And it's continuing because people want to have experiences that pull them out of their devices with people they enjoy. And, and what's so interesting, though, is that I think a lot of us, we treat waiting like we do escape rooms. We try to get out of the room as fast as we can. And, and what's interesting is that waiting is part of the human condition. I did some research this week, and I discovered that in our lives... We're all going to spend six months of our lives waiting in traffic and five years of our life waiting in line. So good news there to start your day off. You know, that's how you're going to spend five and a half years of your life. Uh, I was with, I was at a conference this fall and a technologist who was speaking said that, that if your website loads in longer than two seconds, you're losing customers. He said after five seconds, you've lost 25%. After 10 seconds, you've lost 50%. And I don't know about you, but I'm now at the place where if something takes longer than two days to arrive, it's too slow. Um, I want everything to come at the speed of Amazon Prime. But the problem is, is that so many of the things that God does in our lives, they, they come a lot slower than Amazon Prime. So many of the things that we need to happen in terms of our lives and our character, they don't come that fast. And many times I wonder if in running from waiting, we're actually running from God. We're actually missing out on what he wants to do in our lives. If you were here last week, we kicked off a series for the month of December, the season of Advent, and we're calling it the waiting room. And, and, and for some of us, this is a literal waiting room. Like I had a friend this week who was literally in the waiting room. He was there waiting to be seen by a doctor. But for some of you, it's a more metaphorical thing. You're, you're in a season of waiting in your life, and you're waiting for something to arrive, for something to change, for some relationship to shift. 
And, and the problem is, is for most of us, our default posture to waiting is we either avoid it or we escape it. If I know waiting is down that path, I go down this path. And if for some reason I end up in the waiting room, I try to get out of it as fast as I can. And I have my lovely little door over here. And, and for many of us, we treat the waiting room in life like we treat an escape room. We try to figure out the clues, try to solve the problem. We get everybody to help us because we want to get out of the room. And if you're in a season of waiting, I just want to pose the question. Is it possible that you are trying to escape something that God orchestrated and he's trying to use? And you may think that you're escaping the discomfort, but what if you're actually trying to escape God? Part of the problem of the waiting room is that when we're in the waiting room, we hear lies. We hear things that that deceive us and tempt us to shift and to avoid the waiting. I covered two lies last week. I talked about the fact that we think that we can't see anything happening in the waiting room. We can't hear anything. So therefore, God must be doing nothing. And I also shared that I think in the waiting room, we hear a lie that, that God is hiding from us. Well, those aren't the only lies. I want to share two more with you that I think we hear in the waiting room that are appropriate for what we're going to tackle today. One of those is I think we, we hear the lie that I can't do anything in the waiting room. You know, it's just a bunch of expired magazines and people that I don't want to talk to. And I just, I can't do anything here in the waiting room. And we, we go, well, this must be a wasted period. I got to get out of here. Or we hear another lie that's God is distant in the waiting room. For some of you, you've been waiting and you feel like God couldn't be further away. And so as a result, you try to get away. And each week in the series, we're contrasting lies with truth. And we're building from week to week. So if you missed last week's message, I'd encourage you to go online and watch it. Because last week we discussed this truth. That while we are waiting, God is working. That God is at work. Even if you don't see it, even if you don't feel it, even if you can't sense it, he is at work in the waiting room. As we saw last week, we discovered that God does some of his best work while we're waiting. And this week, we're going to build on that idea with this thought. This is your big idea if you're taking notes. That God goes to work in us and on us when we embrace the waiting room. So if, if, if you'll resist the temptation to escape the waiting room, if you resist the temptation to avoid the waiting room, but if you'll embrace the waiting room, like maybe you just imagine you're going to give this door just a big, big hug, you know? and you're going to embrace waiting, then I believe that God will go to work in you and on you and do more than you could ever imagine, even in the middle of a period or a thing that you're trying to get out of. Now, last year, we, we did another series on, on Advent. We called it Awakening Wonder. If you remember this, if you were here last year, we did a series on wonder. And uh, I was going back through some stuff from last year, and, and I discovered something. Um, th- there was a, a story we looked at last year near the end of the series, and it was a little bit like the turkey that I ended up helping my brother carve on Thanksgiving. There was a lot of meat left on the bone. And so I want to go back into one of the stories we looked at last year. And if you weren't here last year, don't worry, this is all new for you. Um, but I want to go back into it because I think in that story, there are four surprising truths about what happens in the waiting room in that story and what happens in your waiting room. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Luke is uh, about three quarters of the way through. It's after the book of Mark. 
It's before the book of John. It's the third biography of Jesus. It shares his life and his teaching. And we're going to be in Luke 1 this morning. Because there, there is a miraculous birth that's at the core of the Christmas story. But there's actually a second one that often gets overlooked. And in that story, there are some surprising truths. And if you're following along and taking notes, here's the first surprising truth. That appearances can be deceiving. Not sure if you knew that. But just because you see one thing, something else can be happening. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Luke 1 verse 5 and stand as we read God's word together this morning. Luke chapter 1 beginning in verse 5. This is what the text says. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And a whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to Zechariah an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd speak powerfully through this scripture today. And for those of us that are in a waiting room, God, I pray that we would see our own struggle and we would see you speaking and we would respond to what you're saying to our hearts this morning. And it's in your powerful name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Now, if this is your first time in Luke chapter one, I want to give you a little bit of context. So this guy, Zachariah, is at the heart of this story and he's a priest. He's traces before there's ancestry.com. He can trace his history back to Aaron, the brother of Moses. And it's out of Aaron's line that the priests come. But by the day of Zechariah, not every priest is a legitimate priest. The, the, the priesthood has been commodified and corrupted. And people are buying priesthoods. And people are being appointed priests because they know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. And so Aaron, though, sorry, Zechariah is actually part of the line of Aaron. He's the genuine artifact. He's the real thing. And as a, as a priest, twice a year for one week... He would leave his home and he would go to Jerusalem and he'd serve in the temple. And the temple is a massive uh, edifice at this point. It's, it's smaller than in the day of, of Solomon, but it's still huge. And most people would hang out in these outer courts. B but in the inner court right here, the court of the women, and then the court of the, of the offering where the, the offerings were sacrificed is where uh, Zechariah is, is spending most of his time. And, and he's in there and once a day... A priest would go into the actual holy place of the temple and he would offer an incense offering. Now, now I said that Zechariah would go there twice a year, but this is the one day in his whole life that he get to give the incense offering. It's never going to happen again and it never happened before. As a priest, it's the moment you have been waiting for. It's kind of like his career peaks in this moment. And so he goes to the temple 
and he serves for this week. And one of the days within that week that he's there, he takes the incense in onto a very hot uh, offering and he pours the incense and it creates smoke. And it's literally the sign of the prayers of the entire nation rising to God. It's as if the whole nation is focused on what Zachariah is doing at that moment. And as he's giving that, uh, that offering, a tremendous thing happens that we'll get back to in a second. But you might think, okay, he's really excited. I mean, it's kind of the peak of his career. I'm not sure if you've had one of those moments in your career where you go, man, this is, this is everything that I got into this for. Maybe you're given an award. Maybe you hit a milestone. Maybe you have an achievement. But that's his moment. From the outside, that's where he is. But on the inside, something very different is happening. Zechariah is on the backside of his life when it comes to having children. He's, he's pretty advanced in age. Now, we don't know exactly how old that is, but he was well beyond the childbearing years. And he doesn't have a son. And in that day, if you didn't have a son, your legacy stopped with you. In a shame and honor culture, if you didn't have a son, you were ashamed. You were a failure. And it was even worse for a woman. Because in a patriarchal culture where women can't vote, they can't own property, they can't testify in court, your worth and value is giving your husband children. And your primary worth and value is giving him a son. And Elizabeth has given Zachariah neither one of those things. And so while you might think, hey, this is, this is it. This is a great day. This is an awesome day. This is the moment Zechariah is waiting for externally. Yeah, internally. He's probably struggling. And I think some of you can relate. You're here in church. Maybe you stand and sang. Those of you who are introverts are glad we didn't do the meet and greet this morning. You got off easy. But while you may be here and externally everything looks okay, internally you may be in a very different place. It may look like it's great, but friends, appearances can be deceiving. For some of you, this may be a tremendously difficult season where life has not gone the way you thought it would go. And this morning, I, I want to have a little bit of a heart check moment with all of us. Maybe you're not trying to be a hypocrite and put on a fake face. Maybe you just can't actually be honest with somebody if they asked, how's your life going? Our staff are reading through a book right now called Soul Keeping. And one of the questions that the book is raising for us is, how's your soul? What would happen if somebody asked you that question this morning? Would you break down? Would you be able to hold it together? And I think if Zachariah had that moment where somebody asked him, hey, Zachariah, not how's your career, but how's your soul? I'm not sure he could have held it together. Even though externally everything looked great. The second surprising truth that we see from this passage is that when we're in the waiting room, the hope for answers can be abandoned. When you've been in the waiting room for a long time, and for Zechariah, he's been there for decades, you can begin to abandon hope that you're ever going to get the answer you're looking for. If you have your Bible open, if you go down to verse 18, this is what we read in Luke 1. 
Zachariah says to this angel who tells him, you're going to have a son. Says, hey, your waiting is over. You're going to have a son. His name is John. And this is what Zachariah says. How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. He's literally in the temple of God. An angel of God shows up right in the middle of the peak of his career and life. And he hears that his waiting is over. Yes, great news. And this is how he responds. How shall I know this? Uh, By the way, not sure if you know, I'm old. And my wife is advanced in years. Even he doesn't call her old. He just says she's advanced in years. I mean, (laughs) she's 29, you know, um, But when he hears the news, he responds with doubt. And some of us are the same way. If we finally got the news that our waiting was going to be over, we would respond with how? How? (laughs) At this point, how on earth? And what's so interesting is that some of us over the years have been told that God doesn't allow doubt. And that's actually wrong. Last year we covered this in the story that we talked about next, the story of Mary. Because if you know the story of Mary, when Mary receives her news from her angel about her son who's going to be born in a miraculous way, she asks the question too. But it's embraced. And that's because of what doubt does. See, in our lives, doubt does one of two things. It either drives us to ask questions or it drives us to unbelief. And this is why doubt is not necessarily a, a universal thing that it's all bad or all good. It depends on the kind of doubt you have, and it depends on the kind of direction that doubt takes you in. Because if your doubt causes you to ask questions and lean into God, that's a good doubt. But if your doubt leads you to an unbelief or a doubt that God is capable of doing it, that's the destructive doubt. And that's what happens in Zechariah. See, it's not that God doesn't like Zachariah's questions. It's that Zachariah didn't expect an answer. I mean, mean, he's been wrestling with God in this place. And when the answer finally comes, you're going to get out of the waiting room. It's obvious to him that he didn't think it was going to ever happen. He didn't think God was actually capable of doing it. And he raises the question, how can this be? How can you do this, God? Are you capable of it? Let me give you a practical example of what this kind of feels like. Um, I want you to imagine um, your flakiest friend. Does anybody have a flaky friend? You know, person who kind of overpromises, underdelivers. You know, um, hopefully it isn't the person who's sitting next to you at this at this point. Just don't mention them. Um, but imagine you have a flaky friend, and your friend comes to you and says, "Hey, our family is going to Maui for Christmas, and we've had a couple spots open up. Do you want to come?" Do you go beating down your boss's door for time off? Or do you turn to your spouse or to somebody else and go, I'll believe it when I see it. I'll wait till the check cashes. You know, I'll believe when I get the email with the plane tickets. You're cynical. Why? Because that person isn't somebody you can count on. But I want you to imagine, and most of us don't have this, I want you to imagine that you have a billionaire friend. That's a B. Billionaire friend. And uh, a few years ago, when you had a a health issue and you couldn't pay your bills, this person said, how much do you need? And they wrote you a check. Last year at Christmas, they figured out what you wanted, but you couldn't afford. 
and that showed up on your front porch. I want you to imagine that person calls you and says, hey, we're going to Hawaii for Christmas and a couple spots opened up. Do you want to come? You're renegotiating every commitment. You're figuring out how you can borrow time away so that you can go with them. Why? Because they're the kind of person who delivers on their promises. And the problem is with Zachariah, and I think with some of us, is that we've come to a point in the waiting room where we've abandoned hope that God is like that billionaire friend and we treat him like a flaky one. If we're really honest, when we hear a word or a message like this one about what God does, we go, eh, I'll, I'll wait and see. I'll believe it when it happens. And this is why all that the scriptures were reminded where God looks and what God values. In 1 Samuel 16, the prophet Samuel said, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God is not concerned with the superficial things. God is concerned with the substance. And so often in the church we go, externals don't matter, only internals. No, that's a lie. Often what's happening externally is an indication of what's happening internally. And so the questions that Zechariah asks God, how can this be? I'm old. She's advanced in years is revealing the state of his heart. And I just want to raise the question for you that is it possible you've been in the waiting room so long you've abandoned hope? And there are some external things happening in your life that if we were to study them, we would find cues of where your heart and your hope really is. This is where the story gets really good. Point number three. The third surprising truth is that when we're in the waiting room too long, it can begin to feel like punishment. The waiting room sometimes begins to feel like punishment. Favorite Bible open, keep going in Luke 1, verse 19. The angel answers Zechariah. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to you to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah outside of the temple, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. And when his time of service ended that week, he went to his home. So because he responds with a doubt that is rooted in unbelief and disbelief, he's made mute for the entirety of his wife's pregnancy. Now, a few years ago, when I was living in Phoenix, I got a a successive series of strep throat, like three times, like in six months. And my doctor said, if you get strep throat again, we're going to pull your tonsils out. I said, okay, well, what's the recovery on that? He goes, well, you're not going to be able to talk for two weeks. I said, two weeks? I talked for a living. That just sounded miserable. Well, what Zachariah got was 20 times that. Some of you are like, I wish I could mute somebody for 10 months. That sounds like a great idea. Facebook only allows you to mute somebody for 30 days, you know, but I could mute them for 10 months. That'd be awesome. And so he can't talk at all. He can't tell his wife what he saw with his words. He can't describe what happens. He cannot speak. That's his 
punishment. That's his consequence. And some of us, we think that because we serve a God of grace and because we're New Testament Christians, God doesn't do this anymore. (laughs) Friends, God hasn't changed. And a God of grace can still give consequences. And I'm not saying that the waiting room you're in is a punishment, but I'm saying you shouldn't eliminate the possibility. You could be waiting as a consequence. You could be where you are as a consequence. God does forgive, but God does not remove the consequences of our bad decisions. God doesn't protect us from the consequences. Grace isn't this magic eraser that suddenly takes everything away that you did. It doesn't work in, fr- in friendships where somebody says, I forgive you, and they go, but there's still some consequences. And the same thing happens with God. And these are the consequences of Zachariah's doubt. And sometimes, though, when we haven't made those bad decisions, we we go, I must be here because it's punishment. And I'd also say, just because you're waiting doesn't mean you're being punished. It doesn't have to be punishment. You shouldn't eliminate it as an option. But it doesn't have to be punishment. And what's so interesting in the story of Zechariah, this is why I said this is where it gets good, is that what seemed like a punishment actually became a sign and invitation. If you have your Bible open, it says there that those who saw him came out assumed he had seen a vision from God. They assumed that he'd seen something so amazing from God that he could not speak. When I was in Zambia eight or nine years ago, I can remember our guide telling us, we were on our safari, that that a hippopotamus attacked their boat. And they narrowly survived. And there was a woman in the boat who didn't speak for three days. She was so traumatized. And so they assumed that something crazy had happened. Therefore, he had encountered God. And that was the sign to them. But this became an invitation to Zechariah. And that's what I think I I want to tell you is you may be missing out on the invitation that's represented in your waiting room. If you got an invitation in the mail for a waiting in your life, you probably just shred it, you know, pretend you didn't get it, you know, no receipt, you know, I'm not accountable for it, not RSVPing for that. But the invitation for us from God sometimes is a waiting And in that waiting, he does a great work. And that's number four. The fourth surprising truth about waiting room is that waiting rooms can also be opportunities. Waiting rooms can be opportunities for God to work in ways that we don't anticipate. If you have your Bible open, scroll all the way down with your eyes to verse 57. It says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore that son, And her neighbors and relatives heard that God had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And it says, on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, as was the Jewish tradition. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. And they said, none of your relatives is called by this name, because back in that day, you didn't name your kids weird, crazy things. You named them family names. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet 
And he wrote on the iPad, <laughs> probably not an iPad. He wrote on the iPad, his name is John. And they all wondered and immediately, pay attention to that word, we'll come back to it. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. It's the first thing that he said. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then shall this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. You see, for 10 months, Zechariah couldn't talk, but he did have use of his eyes. And he watched as the miracle he didn't believe was possible grew in front of his eyes. I can't imagine what it was like to to be silent for 40 weeks, much less every day for 40 weeks be reminded that I was wrong. That I had told God he couldn't do what literally I was watching him do. And if you think about what happens inside of us, well, when's the last time you were really wrong? I mean, not like, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. It happened this morning with the team. I, I gave the wrong direction. They were all joking. Oh, Scott's wrong. We're writing this down, you know. Um, but when's the last time you really were wrong? What if you had to look that in the face every day for 10 months? What would that do to your heart? What would that do to your character? What would you do when you were finally able to talk after that? Well, we see what Zechariah does. In verse 64, it says, and immediately his mouth was opened after he said his name is John and his tongue was loosed and he spoke. And what did he do? He blessed God, the one who had punished him by making him mute for 10 months. If God made you mute for 10 months, what's the first thing that would come out of your mouth when you finally could talk? (laughs) Would it be blessing God? Or something else. See, what I think happened is while John was in, or Zachariah was in the waiting room, while he was in the room, he started blessing God. He started praising God while he couldn't speak. He started thanking God for the opportunity to wait and be quiet. How do I know that? Because Zechariah didn't know he was going to be able to talk until he could talk. And because he'd been blessing God as soon as he could start talking, it came out. You see, what is going on in the waiting room, it'll spill out when the door opens. It's like something that's uh, filled to the brim, filled to the brim, filled to the brim, filled to the brim, and then it goes over. And what you're doing in the waiting room is what will spill out of your life when the waiting room ends. This is why this is so important. Because if you don't praise God in the waiting room and the waiting finally ends, guess what you're tempted to do? Take credit for the waiting ending yourself. If you don't praise God for who he is while you're waiting, when he actually opens the door and allows you out of the waiting room, praise and blessing won't come out cursing might come out. Finally, he made me wait this long. 
Finally, I can talk again. Finally, it's over. See, what happens in the waiting room, what begins to swell and grow, will tumble out when that door finally opens. And I speak from personal experience. Because for me, my waiting room happened at Starbucks. I shared a few weeks ago that I had a season of waiting working at Starbucks. This is me back then with my uh, green aproned friends. And for me, when I think about waiting, I think about the cafe of a Starbucks. I worked there for a couple years while I was waiting for a job opportunity to open up in the career field I had prepared for and was going into. And while I was in that period, I can remember feeling like I was somewhere I didn't want to be, doing something I didn't want to do for a period that I didn't know how long it was going to last. And you want to know what God did in my waiting room? He does did then what he always does in the waiting room. He began to reveal my heart. He began to reveal to me what was really going on in me while I was there. And the way that God revealed what was in my heart, and typically these moments happened when I was doing the same task. It wasn't making caramel frappuccinos. It wasn't heating up scones. It wasn't pulling shots of espresso. It wasn't refilling ice containers It was cleaning toilets. Typically, when I was literally cleaning up other people's poop, because people would poop outside of our our store, the neighborhood we lived in. And as I was doing that, I remember I was scrubbing the ground one day. And I may have been mute on the outside, but I was not mute on the inside. (laughs) It's that old Charlie Brown line, you know? And while I was scrubbing, I was telling God how I felt about about my waiting. I have a bachelor's degree. I have a master's degree. I'm an ordained pastor. What am I doing here? We're having this, we're having this whole conversation. And what God starts talking to me about is my entitlement. He starts talking about my arrogance. He starts talking about my pride that I think because I've got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree and I'm an ordained pastor, that I'm above scrubbing poop. And while I was in that waiting room, not sure when the door is ever going to open, God began to work in my heart and he revealed that part of the reason he had me in the waiting room wasn't because I couldn't get a full-time job in that career field. It's that I wasn't ready for a full-time job in that career field. It's when I first realized that if serving is below you, leading's beyond you. If you can't serve, you're not ready to lead. And I'm grateful that God began to address these three defects by developing these three characteristics, gratitude, humility, and service. And he began to build these in me. Not that I was grateful all the time. Not that I was really humble. But I knew I needed to be. And he was teaching me how to serve. And it was in that period that I learned a lesson that I would now use describing the words of Nikki Gumbel. Who says, who you are becoming while you are waiting is as important as what you're waiting for. Who you are becoming while you are waiting is as important as what you're waiting for. 
And you may think that you're in the waiting room for one reason, but God may have a very different agenda. And what if God is in the waiting room with you, preparing you, changing you, revealing things about you, so that when that door opens, you are the kind of person who can step through it? And this is why in the waiting room, we have an invitation and an opportunity to embrace so that God can go to work in us and on us. Because when that baby is born, Zechariah is a very different man than he was in the temple. When I got an opportunity to step full time into the career I prepared for, I was a very different kind of person. Because when we embrace the waiting room, God goes to work in us and on us. And here's how we embrace it. If I turn your sheet over to the next steps. Number one, you got to embrace the waiting room. You got to embrace it. If you avoid it or you try to escape it, what you're doing is you're fighting against the work that God is doing. Now, I'm not saying that I stopped applying for jobs. I'm not saying that I didn't start, I didn't start pursuing opportunities other places, but I embraced God. I will be in this as long as you think I need to be in this. And I'm okay with that. And some of you just need to stop right here. Because until you take this step, none of the other ones matter. And maybe you need to embrace for the very first time, this is where God wants you. And begin to be open for what he's trying to do in you in that space. Number two, listen in the silence. One of the things about waiting gets awkwardly quiet when you wait. And most of us aren't good with silence. So we try to fill it. And if God has you in the waiting room and there's silence, maybe he doesn't want you to keep pouring out your heart to him. Maybe he wants you to stop long enough so you can listen. Prayer isn't just you talking to God. It's you listening to him. You got to listen in the silence. Number three, you got to praise God in the waiting. Again, because if you're not praising God in the waiting, you won't praise him when the door opens. What you are in the waiting is what you will be when the waiting ends. So what would it mean if you started praising God in the waiting, not just in the waiting exit? And then number four, depend on God's grace. When, when Zachariah says his name is John, he's saying something most of us miss out on. The word John in Hebrew literally means God is gracious. He was saying, God's been gracious to me. Even though I haven't been able to talk for 10 months. What would it mean for you to be able to say God is gracious? Even in the waiting room. It would require you admitting that you actually need grace. And some of us have a really hard time with grace. We're grateful for it, saving us. The songs we've been singing about that this morning, God saving us with grace. So thankful for that. But there's many of us that don't like needing grace. We don't like needing anything. And if you're going to be in the waiting room, 
part of who you're becoming in the waiting is you're going to have to learn to depend on God. You're going to have to learn to admit your weaknesses and you're going to have to learn to embrace a need for him if he's ever going to go work on you in this place. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.